we're going to be reading from there as we uh, continue in our, uh, in our series in Ephesians. What a blessing it has been to, uh, to prepare this message and to consider the words uh, written. I, 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 I'm astounded at times. Uh, for me, it's hard to remember sometimes that these words were written uh, in the years 30, 40, 50, 60, and not just in the 1930s, 1940s. They, they seem uh, so fresh and new and encouraging and relevant to me that it's hard to imagine um, that they are almost 2,000 years old. Uh, and so I'm, I've just been, I've been very encouraged by my time spent with the Lord in the Word this week and uh, my time spent studying uh, what Paul said. I feel like I, um, I don't feel like I know everything that he's talking about, but I feel like I know his thoughts better. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm very encouraged by my time in the Word this week and, and I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to share with you. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read the first 14 verses as has been our custom the, uh, the past three weeks and we'll do this one more time next week. The scriptures say in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are faithful, or who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word a sure and precious promise which secures knowledge for us, Lord. We thank you that we can turn to this word, we can turn to your book which you have assembled for us by the faithfulness of your servants and by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have brought these words to us in this place 
today. And we pray that as we look into them, that they will speak to our hearts. Father, we thank you that in Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that there is nothing that is held back from us. There is nothing that you are keeping for yourself. There is nothing that you have held in reserve, but you have given every spiritual blessing to those who are in Christ. We thank you that there is a future yet to come beyond this life. Lord, we have assurance for eternity. But Father, we have great confidence in the things that you have given us in this life. That we might follow you in fullness. That we might love you more fully. That we might seek to triumph over sin. That we might know that our labor in you, our battle with sin, is not in vain. We thank you that you have assured us of your grace. And we pray that as we read your word, you would help us to grow in it. Father, we thank you for your ministry toward us in the past. And we thank you for your son's ministry to us in his sacrificial death on the cross. And we pray that as we look into that this morning, as we explore that, we pray that we would be encouraged and enriched and built up. Father, help us to be more like you, to follow your heart. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as we turn to this scripture this morning, uh, we are in the large section of Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Uh, We are going to take this section by section. The theme verse of this section is the initial sentence, verse 3, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Very quickly, let me just rehearse again what this means. This focus of Paul in these first 14 verses is that we too, like he, would resound in praise for the God of our salvation, that our hearts would well up and be excited about what God has done for us in Christ. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Notice that they are spiritual blessings. They are blessings which are in the heavenly places. And so, as I said last week, these are blessings which are difficult at times to physically discern or to hold on to because they exist in reality in heavenly places. They are blessings conveyed by the Holy Spirit. Notice that in the first verse, Paul says that we are, that we are to bless God who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He kind of hits off or kicks off this, this theme, this Trinitarian idea that, that God is one Yes, but also three, and and that the blessings that we experience in Christ come from the Father, from the Son, and through the Spirit. Now, if somebody wants to be very helpful, they'll run me up one of those sheets that uh, is in your bulletin that has a chart on the back of it. Hopefully, you've got one of those. Yes, thank you. Sherry, you are very helpful. Yes, very good. Well, look at your husband's, because uh, I've, I've stolen yours. Last week, we looked through this, uh, this structure here, and we saw that, that, the, that the nature of 
salvation blessings spans this entire section of verses. In verses 4 through 6, we see the person who is at work is the Father. What is the Father doing? The primary blessing up on the wall over there is that He elects from eternity past. He chooses some who are to be saved. So if we ask the question from the Father's perspective, how does salvation work? Salvation comes from the Father. We see salvation is administered by the Father through His sovereign selection. And we see the blessings that we receive in Him. The blessing of election, which leads to the blessing of predestination, that God has determined that there is a process that will go on in our lives that will conform us to the image of His Son. We see also the blessing of adoption and the blessing of grace, that God gives us His riches without restraint. This morning, as we look through this passage, verses 7 through 11, a little convenient spot there for you who like to write stuff down, uh, for you to fill in. Verses 7 through 11, we see the person of the Son. The primary blessing which comes to us is redemption. We'll explore that in a moment. When does that happen? It happens in the past. It happens in the historical past. So we see that salvation is from the Father, yes, but also by the work of the Son. And we see in the life of the Son and in the ministry of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we see salvation accomplished by the selfless sacrifice of the Son. And we will work our way through this morning three blessings enacted by the ministry of the Son, the blessing of redemption, the blessing of forgiveness, and the blessing of knowledge. The purpose of the passage, and I pray that this would be true in your life as we move through the first three chapters of Ephesians, as we move through these first 14 verses, I pray that your heart would be rooted and grounded in the idea that everything that we need comes from God, that these are all good, and that they should stir the heart to bless and to praise God. Let's talk first about the location of all heavenly blessings as we move into our study of verses 7 through 10 here this morning. I said 7 through 11. I mean 7 through, through 10, verse 11 through 14 next week. Notice how Paul leads off in this section. He says, in him, in him, we have redemption through his blood. The location of all heavenly blessings, you can see it through this entire passage. Where are blessings to be found? They're to be found in Him. Back up to verse 6. The last three words in verse 6 say that God has blessed us in the Beloved. He calls Jesus in the, gospel, uh, in the Gospels, my beloved Son. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Notice that God in verse 5 has predestined us for adoption as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ. All spiritual blessings are to be found in Christ. Now, let me just put some skin on this for a moment. 
Many people are critical of, of Christians because they believe that Christians think that they are all that. You know, they think that, they think that we, we are arrogant people or judgmental people. As believers, we ought to seek, especially in our contemporary society, to correct this misunderstanding, to, to rebuke this idea, to, to push back against it, not primarily through words, but through behavior, through the way that we act. We ought to be, of all people, most humble. We ought to be, of all people, most loving. We ought to be, of all people, most forgiving and most caring. Why? Because we receive none of the blessings of God in and of ourselves. We receive them all in Christ. We are nothing apart from Him. We are everything in Him. We have nothing separated from Christ. In Christ, we have everything. Think about it this way, right? Many of you have no ability to fly, right? Many of you have no ability to move at speeds greater than what? 12 miles an hour? I don't run, so I don't, I don't really know. But I can tell you that I have cruised thousands of feet above the surface of the earth. And there have been days when I have accelerated and traveled at a velocity in excess of 90 miles an hour. But none of these things are abilities which I possess in myself. They are abilities which I possess when I am in an airplane. Because I am cruising at thousands of feet. And when I am in my car, you know, in my older cars, they didn't go that fast. But in my present car, I can, I can you know, I get a little scared at around 90 miles an hour. And so, you know, I don't, I don't go any faster than that. I think my car pins out at like 120, but it's never been near that. I'm, I'm too much of a chicken. But I could go 120 in that thing. In the car. We have these blessings in Christ. We have blessings from God in the Beloved, in Christ Jesus, or in Him. God has taken us and He has placed us into His Son. And all the blessings that we receive from God consist in our connection to the Son. Does this make sense? We are in Christ. This is how God can count us as righteous. This is how God can count us as sinless. This is how God can count us as beloved and wonderful. Because we are in Christ. Now, in case there's a temptation for you to think, perhaps that means that God only loves His Son, He doesn't love me, throw that away. Chuck that idea, right? You, you have perhaps had the experience of making jello, right? You take powder and you take water and, and you add sugar if, if you make that kind of jello. If you just make the boring kind of jello, you don't add any sugar. You just, you know, you just pour the stuff from the packet and it tastes like blah, you know, it's, it's gross. But if you take these ingredients and you mix them together, they are intermixed and there is no distinguishing or separating them. And that's the way we ought to view ourselves from the perspective of, of God. God loves us, and so he sets his affection on us from eternity past. We saw that last week. And then he connects us to his Son, which allows us to be, uh, from God's perspective, seen as righteous and clean and holy in his sight. And so he loves us, but we are impure. And so he takes his Son, whom he loves, who is pure, and he unites the two of us together. And now he views us as both beloved and altogether lovely. 
So perish the idea that you are not loved because God only loves his son. He loves his son more than any because his son is perfect. But by uniting us with him, he not only loves us from eternity past, but he loves us for who we are in Christ. This is good news and a good reason to praise God. Let's look at the blessings enacted by the ministry of the Son. Just preview this by saying there's no way we're getting through everything that I have here this morning. It's just not going to happen. Let's talk about the blessing of redemption. We experience the blessing of redemption. Thank you, Becky and Chris, putting up our awesome words on the side, side there. We, the reason we're putting these up, by the way, is so that you can write them on your heart over the next few weeks that you can, you can so work these things into your mind that as we travel through the rest of the book, you will know who you are in Christ. As, as Paul talks about being seated with Christ, we'll know exactly who we are and what we have in Christ so that we will be able to walk in wisdom as Paul urges us and to stand against the works of the devil. We experience the blessing of redemption through the atoning death of Jesus. Look at verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood. What is redemption? I think the only contemporary analogy that's really out there anymore is that of bottles, glass bottles, right? Do they still do this? They do this in Delaware, right? You could take the bottle, you buy the soda, you take it back to the store, and you get a nickel for it, right? You're saving your nickel, you're getting your nickel back. They're not giving you a new nickel. They're giving you the nickel that you paid when you bought the bottle of soda. You turn the bottle of soda in and you get your nickel back. You're freeing your nickel from the captivity. Now that is a sad, low analogy. It is. It is. Our, our, our ability to understand redemption, I think, has declined a bit in a free society that is able to consume mass quantities of sugary products, and that's the only place where redemption still exists. Think back, though, and imagine a society where many people were enslaved, where if they fell into debt, their family, their children, themselves, they could be sold into captivity. Folks, by the way, this kind of treatment of people still exists in the world today, and as a church, we ought to be very concerned about it. The Old Testament example of this is seen in the Exodus where God invades the land of Egypt and rescues his people Israel and redeems them and brings them out of slavery. Deuteronomy 7.7 7 says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Wow, if there's not a connection to last week's message, then wow. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. This is a type, a shadow of the New Testament reality. In the Exodus, as God rescues a people, brings them out of Egypt and, and places them in, in a new land. It's a visualized it's a, it's a picture of the reality of what God would do in Christ. What is redemption? Let me explain it this way. Redemption is a present reality. 
for all those who are in Christ. Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption. We possess it. It is a present reality for all those who are in Christ. And redemption involves three items. The first is a payment of the ransom. In order to be redeemed, one who is a slave or one who is a captive, the debt which they owe, whether it is a punishment debt or a monetary debt, the, the debt must be paid off. And so when it comes to Christians and to believers, when we see the ministry of Jesus, He is paying a price due to each and every one of us because of the righteous wrath of God against sin. There is a price that needs to be paid. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. In our society, and I think in any just society, if wages are earned, they cannot be withheld. They must be paid by law, or the judge will enter into the situation and say, that is unrighteous. And so if we sin, we work for sin, we earn wages. And the righteous wages which we earn for our sins is death. But Jesus pays the ransom that we owe through his blood. Don't just read that word and think about that this fluid, this red substance has some magical properties because that's not the image that's there. Yes, we ought to think of, of the, the shed blood of Jesus, but, but when he says through his blood, think through his righteous life and his torment-filled wrath-bearing, suffering, and death on our behalf. Jesus pays the price. God the Father does not look at him and say, oh, Jesus is good, I'll, I'll send him to the cross and set them free. No, it's he will bear the full assault of my wrath. He will pay the price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought with a price. The price that was paid to pay off our debt. The very suffering and bloody death of Jesus. All creation will one day sing the praises of the Lord Jesus for doing this for us. Revelation 5.9 says they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We are reconciled to God through Christ in that by His death and by the Father's gracious, righteous, loving arrangement of our death, of His death for us, He has appeased the wrath of the Father toward us. Redemption not only involves a payment of the ransom, it also involves a removal of the law's curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. How is the law a curse to us? It's not that there's anything unrighteous in the laws of God. It's that we, in our unrighteousness, are not able to fulfill the laws of God. And so as the laws of God come into our lives and we see that we ought not bear false witness, we should never lie. 
We should never covet. We find a weakness in our flesh, and we cannot measure up. We cannot live up to the righteous demands of God. And so the law becomes a curse to us to condemn us. This is bad news. But not because God is unrighteous, because we're unrighteous. But the Bible says that Jesus removes the law's curse from us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He says, Father, let it fall on me. And he's cursed as he hangs on the cross. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. I think this is the most wonderful Christmas text ever. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus put himself under the law to take the curse of the law for us so that we might escape from the curse. The first element is payment of the ransom. The second, removal of the law's curse. The third, release from the bondage of sin. As Jesus redeems us, he breaks the back of sin in our lives. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but he goes on in verse 19 to say that we were redeemed through the unblemished, spotless blood of Christ. We were ransomed from feudal ways. Jesus breaks in, saves us, rescues us, and removes us from the domination of sin. We see here in the life of Jesus, in this image of redemption, we see a real hero. As I've thought about this and pondered this image, I've tried to imagine firefighters or policemen or, or men who are in the army or spies or any, any, any image of a hero that's in our society and tried to say, what, are, what is a good analogy of, of the, the image of redemption? And I can think of none. Although I have one which I'm, I'm willing to, to put out there, but I think any analogy will fall short. What we see in Jesus' ministry is that fallen men and women deserving the full, unceasing, eternal wrath of a righteous God who exists in three persons are saved by the Father's noble Son according to the Father's noble plan. The Son pays the price to remove our curse, release us from bondage to sin. He gives His life as payment. A substitute condemned in my place that we might be released from our chains and that we might go free. The only image I can think of is this. A judge who fires a bullet in the firing squad who is simultaneously able to shield the victim from the bullet. A vivid, horrific analogy. Our sins have caused a separation between us and our God, and Jesus takes the full wrath of that sin upon himself. This is what Jesus spares us from. And it puts him in a place 
of preeminence, which we're probably not going to see this morning. I'm just going to hint at it. We'll perhaps rearrange things and come back to this next week. Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore, because he died, that's the therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. The old covenant was weak. Through the flesh, we were not able to keep the law. And so Jesus comes with a new covenant that does not depend on us keeping the demands of the law. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We in Christ have this redemption if we believe. It is a present reality. Now I want to move to what I believe will be the, the greatest degree of relevance to you this morning because redemption opens the door for the forgiveness of each and every sin. Notice what it says there in, I believe it's the, the beginning of, of ver, yeah, it's the end of verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption opens the door for the forgiveness of each and every sin. I love what John Calvin has to say about this. He says, Paul says that by the blood of Christ we obtain redemption, which he immediately calls the forgiveness of sins. By this he means that we are redeemed because our sins are not imputed. They're not counted to us. From this comes the free righteousness by which we are accepted by God and freed from the bonds of the devil and death. We must note carefully the opposition which defines the manner of our redemption. For so long as we remain liable to the judgment of God, we are bound in wretched chains. Therefore, release from guilt is an inestimable freedom. What John Calvin is saying here and saying so well, by the way, he's not all predestination and election and all that stuff. Although that's important. I find he's a wonderful, encouraging pastor. What he's saying here is that when we are redeemed by Jesus, all of our sins are covered. All of our sins are covered. Colossians 1.14 makes this same point. It says, in whom we have redemption. The, the work of Jesus is in whom we have redemption. And then he calls it the forgiveness of sins. But this verse highlights the, the, uh, the concept of, of being under the law and being guilty of sin, of having a, a legal debt. But Paul here in Ephesians uses a different word for sin. He calls them trespasses, wrong or sinful acts. In Colossians, it says that we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It's talking about our each, each of our individual debt of guilt, legal guilt, which we've incurred. And I've, I've talked about this over and over before in the pulpit, how if we run a red light, we suddenly become guilty. You may not have, make it a pattern in your life to run red lights and to endlessly commit that sin, but once you run through the red light, you have the guilt of, of, of having done that, and the police will pull you over. You can't back through the red light again and, and, you know, like undo it. You've done it. You're guilty. But that's not the pattern in which we sin, is it? We fall down over and over and over again in so many ways. 
Paul says that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, of our sins, our sinful acts. Call to mind the worst that you have ever done. It's forgiven. Conjure up the thing in your past, perhaps a, a habit in the present of which you are most ashamed. It is forgiven. Imagine the things that would cause people around you who love you in Christ to lose respect for you or that would shake them and perhaps they would say, you know what, I don't want to know you as much anymore. And imagine that sin nailed to the cross and covered with the blood of Christ. Believe that it is forgiven. Psalm 103, verse 12 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31, verse 34 says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, here, listen to this. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The worst you've done. What would cause you to feel the greatest shame? God says, I will remember it. No more. Not that he forgets it, he remembers everything, but it will not cause a separation anymore. I love this. Micah 7 19. This is a fighter verse if I ever saw one. He will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot, he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God will crush our sins with his feet, not in judgment but in forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These two blessings, I'm going to sum up here because there's no way I can even get into the idea of knowledge this week. We may just talk about this the, the entire time next week, knowledge. Um, the blessings of forgiveness and redemption are measured by the standard of God's grace. Do you see this in verse 7? It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. We possess this redemption. We are saved. We are rescued. Our debt is paid. We have been purchased, and therefore we are free. We have that redemption through his blood, which is, which could also be called the forgiveness of our trespasses. Okay, so we possess these two blessings in Christ. We presently have them. And notice the, the standard by which they are measured according to the riches of his grace. The gift of Jesus Christ, the gift of the redemption and the forgiveness that we have in him does not exhaust the supply of God's grace toward us. I think perhaps 
a struggle that many of you may have because I know that this is the way I feel so often. I think that we may feel that when God forgives us, when he says, that's it, I forgive you, he says, now stop sinning. Or I will crush you. I've forgiven you. Now fix your life. The gift of Jesus Christ does not exhaust the supply of God's grace. It is evidence of God's abundant love and mercy toward us. God gives to us according to the riches of His grace. He doesn't just give to us of His riches. Imagine two people, both exhaustively rich, and you are starting a charity where you have need of a tremendous gift. And a man who possesses more money than you can possibly imagine says, you have a charity, and you're asking for gifts of 25, 50, 100, 500, or $1,000, and I have more money than you can possibly imagine, and so I will check off the largest box you have and give you $1,000. That man has given of his riches. And we might think, well, maybe I'll go back to him next year and ask him for more. Right? You know, maybe he's good for it next year. I'll call, I'll call him back up. But another man comes to you and says, I so believe in what you're doing. I am moved in my heart with love towards you. And I want to show kindness to your ministry, to your charity, according to to my riches. And he writes you a check for more than you can possibly imagine. $50,000. $500,000. $5,000,000. And you think, what could I possibly, how could I possibly ever repay or, or understand the depths of this person's gift toward me? The answer is, we can't. We can't. We should be bowled over by this. This should so move us and, and place us in, in our mind in a, in a position where we say, I am so indebted to this person. I never could have accomplished this apart from their gift. I am, I am overwhelmed. I am speechless. I am humbled. I am thankful. I am impressed. Thank you. That's, way, that's, that's a person giving according to the riches of their grace. Now, God does not give forgiveness and redemption to us from His grace. He gives it to us according to the riches of His grace, which means it is inexhaustible, it is infinite, it is limitless, it is without end. Every sin you've ever committed, covered. Every sin you will ever commit, forgiven, paid for taken away forever according to the riches of His grace. The gift of Jesus does not exhaust the supply of God's grace 
toward us. The gift of Jesus, the wrath-bearing, redeeming Son of God, is an indication of the greatness and the permanence and the everlasting foreverness. I can't heap up enough words to communicate this to you. Of the standard of His grace, it does not end. Ever. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're not a believer and you're here this morning and you want this, all you need to do is trust in the grace of God in Christ and it's yours. And if you are a believer and you're here this morning and you're you're thinking, can God forgive this or that? My encouragement to you is believe it. Hold on to it. Don't let the devil, devil rob it from you. Trust in it all of your days. What a Savior. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word communicates truth. That your word builds us up in all that we need each and every day. That your word cuts to the deepest core of what we need to know. Perhaps we don't always think we need to know it. Perhaps at times we feel like this is not immediately relevant to us, Father. But I pray that we would focus our hearts and minds on the word that you have spoken to us today. Father, if there's any here this morning who wonder, can God forgive me for this sin in my past? I pray that you would communicate to them by the power of the Holy Spirit that the answer is most definitely yes. You delight in forgiving sin. And I pray that if there are any believers here this morning who feel bound up under a weight and a burden of how they should be better or of how they feel like you've forgotten them or lost interest in them because they still struggle, I pray that you would assure them of the infinite wealth of your grace. And I pray that they would trust you each and every day. Father, we thank you for the blessing of redemption. We thank you for the blessing of forgiveness. We thank you that this is a foundation we can build our lives on, not ourselves. Father, thank you for this word. Write it on our hearts, we pray. Amen.